us turn right now in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. We're not going to get to it for a little while, so you can maybe, if you want to, stick your bulletin in it or put your finger in it. It'll take a moment, but when we get there, then, then we don't have to do the work of finding it. So today, we visit the story of Naaman and his very distracting leprosy. But we actually have a lot to get through before we get to that point. So I just want to keep a few questions in mind before we even start. Uh, Before we start today, I want us to think, who are God's people in these passages? Who in these passages needs healing? And who has received it? I want those questions to be kind of at the forefront as we move through all of these narratives and all of these passages. Um, So if you want to write them down, I'll repeat them. Otherwise, just kind of keep them at the front of your mind. So one more time. Who are God's people in these passages? Who needs healing? And who has received it? And as we begin to think of those questions, maybe even in our own lives, I invite us to pray together to begin our time. Our God, we turn to you, the great healer. We turn to you and your word. May you fill us with your Holy Spirit. May you speak to us today, to each of us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think a lot of us probably know of the story of Naaman. It's I'd I'd judge it almost on a medium on the popularity scale. I really didn't hear about it until I went to college, but then I didn't grow up in the church either. So it's it's one of those stories some of us all know. And I think if you've heard that story, then you always know Naaman was healed when he was told to dip in the Jordan River, and he had leprosy. Those are some kind of blaring obvious parts of the story. But today, I want to step back from those parts because I think Naaman's leprosy almost becomes a distraction to us. And it's meant to be a distraction, actually, in some ways. So I'm going to take us back two chapters before we even start with today's scripture. We're going to start back at at 2 Kings 3, and we're going to think about the narrative behind the narrative. What was going on with God's people? So, Naaman's story is part of a few greater narratives. And it seems to almost interrupt them and steal the spotlight. It comes in the middle of a bunch of conflicts. Conflicts between kings. Conflicts between the king and the prophets. Conflicts between nations, conflicts between the people of God and the worshipers of Baal. There's just conflict all over the place. 
And it also takes place in the greater context of the story of what the prophet Elisha was doing, who he was working with. Elisha, who acts as God's representative, was doing something else. And so we get to see, based on Elisha's preferences, a glimpse of God's own preferences and God's own character. Our story takes place in the mid-9th century BCE. The northern kingdom of Israel was actually, even though I said they're in a lot of conflict, they're actually in an era that can almost pass for a time of peace. Sort of. We'll get to that later. There were the Syrians, um, who are otherwise referred to as the Arameans, and they were moving all over the land. They were taking over the ancient world. They were the driving force of the day, and they were in control everywhere. But there was a tentative, if not long-lasting, peace between the king of Israel and the king of Aram at the time. Now, the Aramean king is not necessarily important, or at least his name is not necessarily important. It isn't listed in the text, uh, but we can assume it is either Ben-Hadad II or Hazel. I actually don't know how to say that, I guessed. Uh, And in relation to Israel, whoever the king is, is actually going to make a big difference in how much peace the king of Israel is feeling. So the king of Israel was King Yehoram, and he had a tentative treaty of peace with Ben-Hadad II. So the beginning of his kingship, the beginning of King Yehoram's kingship, started with this tentative treaty treaty with Ben-Hadad II. But we don't know that he's king. If he is, maybe there's a nice calmness in the land. But if he's not, if it's Hazael, then there's a problem because later in the kingship, Hazael's troops end up seriously harming um, King Yehoram. So I've been kind of thinking of this relationship between Israel and Aram as a reality TV show friendship. I don't watch reality TV shows because this is the vision I have of them. They're always backstabbing each other and then pretending they really adore each other and then backstabbing each other some more. And I think we call those frenemies. So that is, that is what Israel and Aram have. They're frenemies. They kind of act nice to each other. In some ways, they sort of need each other. In some ways, they can ignore each other. But when they have the chance, they backstab at each other. So they're not in a great time. And even in the time of peace that they have, we do see in our our text for today, later, we see that there are some captives who are taken, even from Israel, even during this time of peace. So when I say there's peace, I mean... There's not an outright current war. But the kings are fighting with each other. They are killing each other for kingship. The kings are not leading the people well. There is conflict all around them. And the king himself 
does not get a very flattering review in the scripture. His name is listed as Haram, so if you look this up, they're the same person. Yehoram and Haram are the same person, but in 2 Kings 3.3, he's referred to as Haram. We think it's because there's also in, in Judah another king, and his name has, happens to also be Yehoram, and he happens to reign in Judah at the same time as King Yehoram in Israel, just to complicate things and make things a little muddier. Um, so Horam and Yehoram are both the king of Israel. Anyhow, in, Kings th- in 2 Kings 3, the very beginning of Yehoram's introduction paints his character for us, and it's not flattering at all. He's compared to his father, his father Ahab, who was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, his father Ahab was so evil that the scriptures say up until his reign, he was the most evil king yet. That was King Ahab. And then we get Ahab's son, Yehoram, whose review in scriptures says this. He wasn't as evil as his father, but he was still evil. And if that's the nicest thing you can say about someone you've got problems. And that was the current king. So Yahram did not worship Baal as his parents did before him. And maybe you're saying, what is the problem with worshiping another god? That doesn't make you evil. Maybe it doesn't make you a good leader for God's kingdom, but it doesn't make you evil. But Baal worship really was There was sacrifice involved. It wasn't a nice religion. And his parents took part in that. He did, however, fully support the cult and all kinds of many religions of the surrounding lands that they had to offer. And while he didn't outright worship Baal, he did nothing to stop it. And he did nothing to lead worship of the one true God in Israel. Further, and we'll see this as our narrative progresses, he knew that God was the one true God and in charge, but he did his utmost to not follow him, even at the expense of his own peace even at the expense, I think, of his own sanity, but that's my own speculation. He certainly did not interact with or listen to the prophets of the Lord when he could help it. When we open our passage today, King Yehoram is still smarting from the humiliation of a defeat that he suffered at the hands of the Moabites in chapter 3. It's a defeat that may feel more like a betrayal from the prophet Elisha and therefore a betrayal from the God of Israel. And so when we skip ahead to chapter 5, upon receiving the letter from king of Aram, Yehoram believes that he's being trapped. Well, he will not be able to heal the man's leprosy 
because he's out of favor with God and God's prophets, and he knows that. And that's going to start a war with Aram. And since he's out of favor with God, surely Israel will lose that war. He's trapped. And he thinks maybe the king of Aram knows it and is doing it on purpose. He's paranoid enough to think through all of this process and to know that it would be better if he was aligned with the one true God but he's not well enough to actually decide to make that alignment. And really, from the way he acts, it seems as though he doesn't want to at all. I see King Yahram, and I see one of God's people who has fallen so far and turned so far away that they don't think there's a way back. He's not the only one. Now, funnily enough, Yehoram means the Lord is exalted. Though his name proclaims the truth, it seems that he takes his name to mean that he is the exalted Lord and King of Israel. After all, he is the one who is blessed with the throne. And so he fights for power with the true exalted Lord and God of Israel, and his pride just cannot allow him to seek the wholeness and wellness from God that he actually knows and admits that he needs. But his name, the Lord is exalted is going to become the underlying theme of all of these narratives that we're weaving together today. So remember that too. I'm just making you remember a bunch of things. But remember this too. In the brokenness, in wholeness, in absolute power, or in lowly humility, no matter who you are or where you are from, the Lord should be exalted. And so we cannot read the next couple of narratives without acknowledging not only where Yehoram stands between himself and God, but his very name declaring the whole point of these stories. The Lord must be exalted. Now, the king of Aram he really had no way of knowing that Yehoram's prophets were not aligned with him. As far as the Aramean king knows, Yehoram is a king. He can order those prophets to submit to him and align with him. Yehoram is the king. He should consult with the prophets of God. After all, Israel is known to be a theocracy. It's a kingdom run by their God's rule. So if their king is not speaking or aligning with the prophets of their God, then what's the point of being a theocracy at all? Yes, the king of Aram thinks, yeah, Yehoram must be in close and constant counsel with the prophets, especially this famous one that we've heard of, this famous man of God. The king must know him. Now that's the political background 
that's the narrative behind the narratives. That's what's going on, and it's all important. This is a nation who needs healing because we see the brokenness of the king. Imagine the brokenness of the people who have only his leadership to follow. They are in darkness of constant conflict all around of all different sorts, and their leader himself needs healing from his own depravity that has pushed him into this brink of paranoia. But as we said, this story is important from other contexts as well. So we move from chapter 3 into chapter 4, and it seems like it's an entirely different mind space, and yet it's still about healing. We move from 3 where there's an absolute power play, power against God, when really God is the ultimate power. And then we move to chapter 4, where we see a series of the lowliest people. First, a woman of faith who reached out to Elisha because her husband, who had been a prophet, has died, leaving her a widow with two sons to raise, and the money is no longer there and the debts have piled high, and her sons are going to be taken from her and sold into slavery to pay off her debt that will truly never actually be paid off. She and her family are desperate. And so she, being a woman of faith, reaches out to Elisha, and through Elisha, God performs a miracle. He fills every jar and container in in her house with pure olive oil that she can sell at the market. And it is so much olive oil. It's not just a couple of jars. It's so much olive oil that she can sell it at the market. And pretty soon, she has enough money to save her sons from slavery. And pretty soon, she has enough money to pay off all her debt. And pretty soon, she has enough money that her family can survive and live off of it as long as they need to. God provided healing for that broken family in a beautiful and miraculous way. And they acknowledged it. Before he ever provided the healing, They acknowledged who God was and from where their salvation would come. In the same chapter, Elisha moves on in his ministry, and a woman faithfully provides food and shelter for him. Not just once or twice, but constantly. Elisha wants to thank them for it. This is actually a wealthy family. They are not poor, as the last narrative um, showed us. These are wealthy people. And so when Elisha asks what they need, at first she says, well, we, we don't need anything. We just wanted to do this for you. This is an act of faith because you are a man of God, and we wanted to support you on God's mission. But Elisha investigates 
and finds that they have no child because the woman's husband is far too old to provide one. If he's far too old to provide a child, then to be honest, he's not far from death. If she is left a childless widow, she will not inherit what he can leave. His inheritance will pass to another relative, and she may very well, in fact, she probably will, end up also impoverished with no son to sustain her and no son to gain the inheritance. And so God gives her a child and in that same, that same scene, a few years later, that child is out working the fields and he dies. We think from sunstroke. And that woman of faith goes to Elisha. Her husband says, no, no, it's not a day you can go consult the prophets. And I think that, I don't know what he was thinking. I think if I were that woman, I'd be like, our son is dead. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what he was thinking. But she has the faith and she says, no, I'm going. And she goes to Elisha. And this is really important for later in our narrative. She goes to Elisha and Elisha comes to her son who is dead, who just by proxy will make Elisha unclean because it is a dead body. And the Israelites cannot be around a dead body without being unclean. And he lays fully on top of the body. He is all of the unclean that you can get. He is laying on top of the body. He is not afraid of being unclean if it is in service of God. Keep that in mind later for, for Naaman. And the son lives. He's brought back to life through God's mercy. That was healing from poverty again because the woman had faith and gave. And it was healing from the very dead, which only God, the giver of life and death, can do. Finally, in Gilgal, there was a great famine. People were starving. And a company of prophets had met in that region, and they were about to eat stew, but as they opened it, they realized the stew was poisoned. And so through Elisha, God purified the stew and made it edible. And not only that, but multiplied it so that all of the prophets could be fed, even in that time of famine. For the lowly and the humble, who had turned to God no matter what, even in dire circumstances, and said, I can't, but you can, God provided whole and miraculous healing. So I'm going to pause here and re-ask our opening questions. Who are God's people? so far in this passage. Who needs the healing? And who has received it? 
We've so far talked about the king of God's people. Was he one of God's people himself? We've talked about the king of the Aramaeans, who's sometimes an enemy of God's people. Was he one of God's people? Then we have Elisha. We have the faithful widow. We have a selfless woman. We have a whole company of prophets. And we have a hurting nation. And this is the overview of the first two chapters that lead us to today's passage. So much has already gone on. And all of it matters very intricately to chapter 5. So I hope you're still in chapter 5 because we're going to start in verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he could cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go! The king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of clothing, and the letter he took from the king of Israel, which read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so you may cure him of his leprosy. Well, as soon as the king of Israel read that letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, much better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went 
He went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and it became clean like that of a young boy. Now Naaman is a man of honor and might and valor. He is respected and revered all throughout the land. He has led his nation to victory many times, and his king is proud of him. But he needs healing. The text says, but he was a leper. Earlier, I said that his leprosy was distracting, and it is. He's listed with all of the highest honors he could possibly possibly be listed with, and he should be one of the greatest and most honored men in what was that time, the most powerful kingdom around. But he was a leper. And that one qualification distracts from and diminishes everything else about him. And do you know what else is distracting? Suddenly, we start to think that this is a story about healing from leprosy. But it is not. Naaman needs to work, needs the work of God in his life. He needs God's healing. And this is a sermon about healing, but the leprosy isn't actually the problem here. Mighty Naaman was so great, he knows he can go to his king to help him with a favor from a neighboring king. He keeps a servant girl, a captive from another land, because he can, because he's mighty. In contrast, the servant girl is alone. She's a long way from home. Her life is not easy, and she is lowly. Maybe she's not even allowed to speak directly to Naaman. That wouldn't be unusual. Perhaps she might be out of order when she speaks to his wife. What we know of captives, what we know of servants, tells us that her life is far from easy. But by faith, she speaks up and says, Go to the man of God in my homeland. And Naaman knows that he can. He can do anything, really, that he pleases. Bold Naaman goes directly to his own king first, gets an outstanding referral, and then he stands before the king of Yahram and expects royal treatment. But, well, the king of Israel is a disappointment. He's fearful and angry and really absolutely no help at all. Before Naaman could fret, there came word from Elisha, come, you will know there are prophets in Israel. In other words, come, know the God of Israel. And Naaman went to the house of the mighty prophet. He's a mighty man. It's only right that the best prophet in the land should summon him. And yet Elisha didn't even open the door. Elisha, was he worried about ceremonial uncleanliness? If he got too close to this leper, was that going to be a problem for him? Maybe if we just read this passage, we might think that. But we've also inspected the other narratives, and we know he's not. We know he's touched dead bodies for the sake of God's kingdom. 
He's not afraid of this man's leprosy. No, instead, Elisha was working as God's messenger, providing a healing, not of flesh, but of attitude. Elisha didn't even allow the honor of a face-to-face conversation. He told this great and honorable man to go and bathe in the absolutely filthy, muddy waters of the Jordan River. And we all just read this passage. We know what happened, it worked. And there was some grumbling beforehand, but his attitude, his attitude did a complete turnaround on his healing. We didn't read that part really. After that, he requested land from Israel so that he could always worship at the altar of God on holy land. Not any God, but the one true God of Israel. He met the God of Israel and he knew who had the power. His whole life turned around because we knew he he was healed of leprosy, but for the very first time, he realizes why he is great and highly regarded. And the clue is in the very first verse of our passage. The verse says, he was a man highly regarded. Why? Because the Lord had given him favor. He just never acknowledged it before his, before his healing. He didn't even know who the Lord of Israel was. And much like Yehoram, he seemed to acknowledge himself as the exalted Lord. And his healing was far more complex than we tend to notice. See, we're distracted by that leprosy word. We're distracted by the, but he was a leper. But the big healing is that he finally recognized that his greatness was a gift from God. And what the mighty healing does not distract from is that this is a glaring contrast between his own healing and the king of Israel. He was a great and mighty man, master, one of valor and victory and might. He exalted himself, same with King Yehoram, but he was an outsider. In fact, he was an enemy of Israel. He should not have been included in the people of God, at least common sense would say so, whereas King Yehoram, by birth and by right, was. And yet, King Yehoram did not accept the healing of God. He turned from him, and he, he rejected him every step of the way. He even acknowledged that God was the God of life and of death and of everything. God was the God of power. God was the God who gave all. God was the God who could honor him and bolster him with favor. He recognized that and could not faithfully follow. Whereas Naaman never knew the God of Israel. And as soon as he met the God of Israel, He humbled himself before the Lord and worshipped him from then on. 
It is easy for anyone to be welcomed into God's family and thereby his grace. The story of this leprous Aramean, otherwise acknowledged as an unclean outsider, shows that. Are we back at King Yehoram, where we feel that we have gone too far and strayed for too long? It doesn't matter, because this leprous enemy of God's people is now a child of God by his grace. Everybody is welcome in God's kingdom. Every character in chapter 4 was also in need of healing. The focus of the chapter is different, though. They didn't resist it as the characters in the surrounding chapters. Every one of them demonstrates this humility before God and faithfulness to him that Yehoram and Naaman at first didn't acknowledge. Yet they all had God's favor and experienced his blessing in their lives. Maybe this sounds obvious, and I think it should, really, but maybe we need a reminder. Sometimes our pride stops us from depending fully on God or from acknowledging the greatness that he's already poured into our lives. And other times we go to great lengths, trying and trying and trying to seek his favor. We think of faith healings and miracles as shocking, but all we need to do is acknowledge him and faithfully turn to him, and he heals us far beyond what we even dare to ask for. He gives us exactly what we need because he knows exactly what we need. We don't need to go to great lengths to buy his favor because he already went to great lengths for us. Because Christ died for us, we are made complete, whole, redeemed, and healed. And all of that to completion when Christ comes again. God rewards the faithful, the obedient, his people, both here and again more so in heaven. He rewards his people, whether Hebrew or Aramean or Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. His people are all of those who are faithful and obedient to him. We have great things through him who gives, us, who gives them to us. We don't always acknowledge them, and sometimes there's that, but this that distracts us. But instead I ask, where has God heaped blessings and favor into your life already? And where are you awaiting his healing? This is not a narrative about healing leprosy. It's a narrative that proclaims that no matter who you are or what your station is in life, God wants to do great things in you and through you. If only you acknowledge, believe, and respond to the Lord in faithful obedience. And so today, reflect on and receive these great things he has done and await his perfect healing where you need it 
because you are a child of the true exalted Lord. Amen. I'm going to pray and we're going to go into a time of reflection and worship through offering. Please pray with me. God, every one of us stands before you in need of your favor, in need of your healing, awed of your power and might. God, would you meet us? Would you heal us? Would you hold us as your children? These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.